This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, as you just heard Charlie say, California cases, the fresh numbers uh, just out up 2.2%. That's above the seven-day daily average. Let's talk about what's going on in California, and let's talk about what may happen going forward with the state of medicine. The perfect guest to talk about all of that is Dr. Peter Alperin. He is vice president of Doximity, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Dr. Alperin, really nice to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. So tell us about what's happening there in California and specifically in San Francisco. I I was talking with uh, an executive out there earlier today and, you know, he was sort of describing what was going on just sort of outside his, outside his door. What does it feel like on the ground, but maybe more importantly, from your perspective as a doctor, what are you most worried about? What are you seeing? Yeah. So uh, great question. And thank you so much. Um, In San Francisco, we've been remarkably, uh, doing pretty well. Things are pretty stable here, um, and I think the people of and the citizens of San Francisco have taken uh, the social distancing and the public health um, uh, recommendations very, very seriously. Um, people are really taking uh, it to heart of wearing masks and uh, keeping keeping apart when they go outside. Um, in my own personal practice, um, I have definitely seen some, uh, you know, a lot of anxiety around around uh, COVID, and uh, we've been able to manage that. And, you know, we've seen a big transition, as you probably are aware, towards patients really wanting to engage with us um, and engage with the practice in a, through telehealth. And that's one of the reasons at Doximity we've developed a, a, a telehealth tool that all physicians can use. And you're a pretty cool organization. I mean, you're a professional medical network for physicians. I think if I read it correctly, you've got a larger membership than the AMA. Um, and you've got health tech leaders from a lot of institutions that are very familiar to our audience, whether it's the Cleveland Clinic, Stanford, um, Medscape. And so I do wonder um, what sticks with us. We've heard a lot, to be quite honest with you, um, Dr. Alperin, about telemedicine and how this is going to be the thing that really moves the needle going forward. At the same time, my doctors are like, please come into the office. So I do wonder, you know, kind of what sticks with us ultimately and what you know, in terms of disruption, the medical community, the medical systems have been very slow to change. So I'm just curious, what really sticks with us? Yeah. Um, so the so the observation that you make you made about telehealth sort of you know blasting upon the scene is is absolutely um, is absolutely right. What we've what we've really noticed is that um, you know obviously in April when everything was very much shut down, patients were coming. Uh, not able to come into the office, and therefore telehealth was the was really the only way that we could see patients. Um, I do think, though, that, that this has been a watershed moment, and the fact is is that patients like telehealth. It's convenient, it's um, it's effective, and I think what's convinced what physicians have learned is that um, that because patients like it, uh, and they've been able to understand how to best incorporate it into their practice, and it does vary from specialty to specialty. Um, you really can. You know, you know, triage the types of patients that you need to see in the office versus the ones where a routine follow-up uh, is something that you can do via telehealth. And that's why, you know, through the, the dialer video uh, 
able to create this tool that is super easy to use, reliable and secure so that you can have those, those conversations with patients. And I do suspect um, that what's going to happen is that, that it's obviously going to come down from its peak, which was in some offices 50, 60, 70, 80 um, percent right. at the peak of the, uh, the crisis. And I think it's going to decrease, though, but I think it's going to set at a new level. And that level, I, you know, we're, it's hard to tell. Anywhere from 15 to 25 percent is sort of what we're estimating. Um, is going to be the new normal for telehealth, which is a huge mm. increase over where it was prior to the epidemic. Well, and I do wonder, you know, you talk about prior to the epidemic, and it's right, as you well know, we're still kind of in the midst of it, especially as we see, you know, cases spice, spiking, excuse me, yeah. in other parts of the country. And I do wonder how telemedicine can kind of help us in terms of dealing whatever, you know, I don't want to say second wave because it's in many ways still the first wave, <laughs> you know, whatever kind of spikes we are, how it can help us and help more people um, get through this and maybe deal with it in a better way on a public health uh, level. And also, you know, it's got to be a part of that contact, you know, tracing element too and testing. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, so telehealth offers a huge number of advantages um, that, that I think are going to really be um, significant improvements in the way that we've delivered healthcare. First and foremost, you can you can see patients that otherwise may not have been able to make it into your office, regardless of the epidemic. So that's it's certainly more convenient from that perspective. Um, you're also going to be able to have specialty care be delivered to areas where specialists maybe are a little bit more limited. So the, um, you know, being able to have, say, a dermatologist um, provide services to a rural area where there really is not that level of specialty care is another huge advantage. And then, uh, gosh, in terms of, t- of uh, contact tracing, you're absolutely right. The ability to, to be able to see a patient routinely after they've, uh, they've tested, they've been tested and tested positive perhaps for COVID um, is a critical part of, you know, uh, of the, um, the containment of the epidemic is making sure that those people who have been um, who have tested positive are able to be followed up appropriately because um, as I think we all know by now not everybody needs to be uh, come into the hospital and really but but if you do need to go we definitely want to know and telehealth is an integral part of that. Well, let's continue our conversation with Dr. Peter Alperin, Vice President of Doximity, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. And Dr. Alperin, thanks for sticking with us. I I do want to ask you, uh, sort of going back to where we started a little bit, because we're seeing headlines. We've got a market, candidly, that's largely discounting, to say the least, what's going on from a health perspective. But sort of as human beings, as people who want to get back to something resembling normal life, what should we be thinking about when it comes to the next phase of this virus? Uh, wow. So I completely understand people's uh, desire to get back to some sense of normalcy. I myself would love to be able to go out to dinner and, and do all the things that I'd like to do and watch baseball and, and all the different kinds of things. I do think, however, um, the new normal is going to be uh, for a, a significant amount of time. I think we are going to have to be wearing masks, for instance, for, for a while. And I think we're going to need to be practicing social distancing for a while. Frankly, until there is a vaccine, until there is something that provides a definitive prevention uh, for COVID-19, um, we are always going to be at risk of localized um, epidemics. Um, I think widespread testing is obviously a huge part of, of, of the solution so that we can be more be more focal and more localized about those people that we need to quarantine. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to um, continue some level of this um, for the foreseeable future. Um, it doesn't mean we'll have to be in the massive crack, the massive quarantines that we were back in April, um, but some form of, of distancing prevention and um, 
uh, quarantining will be, um, you know, what the the matter of the day will be for the next uh, several, several months. Was, have we really missed the mark, though, in terms of really getting our act together about testing and tracing on a national scale? We we talked with Dr. William Hazeltine yesterday, um, obviously Mm -hmm. well-known in the the medical and biotech community, but I do wonder if... um, you know, he said it, you need kind of like a military in place on a healthcare level to do this right and do it on a grand scale. And he, and he really just said, we're missing the mark. And, and that's how we could have kind of changed the outcome here. Do you agree? Um, I, you know, I, I do agree in principle that um, if we had had more widespread testing um, earlier and it had been available pretty much on demand throughout the country, you know, months earlier, then we would be in a, we'd be in a better position because we'd have a you know a, a better system in place for identifying again those people who um, are actively uh, carrying COVID and, or are afflicted with it. Um, you know, it's one of the troubles that we have with our system being decentralized in the way that it is, with states you know having a huge role, and it's it's just it's sort of inherent in the, the way that we deliver healthcare in this country. Um, however, that said, I do think that um, there's been huge strides made in testing. For instance, here in San Francisco, um, it is pretty easy now to get a test uh, pretty much whenever you need it and get the results back uh, in, in two to three days. I can't say that that's true for all localities, um, but it's true for here. Um, so while I agree in principle, um, it certainly is. it certainly doesn't mean that uh, we haven't made great strides. And I guess the last thing that, that I would ask you, Dr. Alperin, is you know back to the discussion of, of telehealth a, a little bit does it already feel sort of normal to to go to the doctor more or less for you know for something uh non-covid like how, how does it feel for for patients and for doctors um you know i think that we're moving back towards um a more semblance of normal i'll mm-hmm. say that uh, you know in my own practice um we are seeing uh, you know we're doing a lot of telehealth and we're using dialer video uh, to do that uh, but when patients do need to come into the into the office, we're um, you know we're, we have made some changes, which are subtle but important. You know, patients come in with a mask. We try to do as much check-in as we can prior to the appointment. We're spacing yeah. out appointments. Um, so we are taking some of those really um, sort of just prudent steps. But like I mentioned, um, it's you know th- there's a new normal, and, and and that's how you know that's how things work. Is whenever there's a big a big event, um, you know things get recalibrated, um, and, and uh, again that's that. And we adapt. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, good to spend some time with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Alperin, Vice President of Doximity, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Good to get his perspective, both as someone in a company, but also, you know, practicing medicine, uh, which obviously seeing this uh, on the front lines, Carol. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just again, a bit of a cautious voice reminding yeah. that we're still in the thick of it. No doubt about it. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on a Wednesday afternoon. And what a Wednesday it is in many ways. Bloomberg Business Week, Joel. Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, can excuse I, me. Joel. And can I just say, having starting to go out in the world and sometimes have to go to a store, the one thing you're realizing that's really now everywhere is plexiglass. It is. It is. So let's talk about plexiglass with Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, and Bloomberg Business Week assistant managing editor, Jim Ellis. Uh, this is leading the business section this week. So Joel, tell us about this. This, uh, I dare say, is a story that was hiding in plain sight. 
Oh, you know, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so many, See what so I many did there? Good, uh, I, I, I did. Uh, well, I, I heard it, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, you got hurt by Jim, it? Uh, like... yeah. I know, I know Jim's going to have more jokes for us here, too. Uh, but, yeah, the moment that he mentioned the story, it just sort of was like, oh, that is literally hidden in plain sight. And, Carol, to your point, you know, as everything has been reopening, from restaurants to offices, it's created this huge boom for the makers of plexiglass and so much of a boom that there's actually a, an incredible shortage. Um, so, Jim, what do we who's behind plexiglass? This is just a company that, you know, it's, again, hidden in plain sight. Yeah, I mean, people had sort of taken for granted that, um, you know, this was a kind of product whose time it had passed. I mean, plexiglass has been around for almost 100 years, and um, uh, it was a German scientist um, um, who discovered it uh, back in the, before the 20s, and uh, it turned out that a, a German company called Rome, which was the sort of old Roman Haas, um, you know, has continued to make it, and it's normally used for things like um, uh, the lights in, a, um, uh, in an automobile, the light covers. And uh, you don't really think of it as something that um, is everywhere. However, um, you know, it had gotten to the point where it was having pricing problems, there was oversupply, and it was a business that Rome had started to cut workers for and trying to look for ways to save money. Then, bam, all of a sudden, COVID-19 comes. And people need the guards that basically separate, you know, cashiers or bus drivers or whatever from customers on the other side. And there then becomes a giant rush to buy this stuff. And, uh, you know, the demand that and some, some people are saying, some analysts are saying, that for partitions inside businesses, it's tr- triple demand in just a matter of weeks. Which has been like kind of a game changer, Jim, right, for this company. I mean, they were they were hitting some tough times here, right, especially as I think auto demand and some other industrial demands were down. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, because automobiles are a big uh, piece of that business, they had, um, you know, sort of had a sort of a slump in that. And because the patents on these types of, uh, uh, you know, this type of acrylic, or, or the, the patents are gone, and so it's a you know, entry is not blocked for newcomers to come in. So there are other companies that um, uh, make you know sort of similar products, and too many people were making the stuff, and so therefore it couldn't get good pricing. Now the demand is there, and Rome is sold out at least through October, maybe later. And and Jim, what? You mentioned patents. What does the competitive landscape for yeah. plexiglass look like? Um, I mean, it, it's it's funny because I sort of thought, oh, you know, this is a business that maybe a lot of people were not active in. But um, some of the original companies are still, you know, basically still command that business, Rome, um, but also um, Imperial Chemical, which is a European company that makes something called Perspex, which is a big, big product in Europe. Which is sort of, and then the old Lucite. You'll sort of remember when, you know, at least from when I was younger, it was quite a big brand here in the U.S. that Dupont used to make. But now that brand is owned by a Mitsubishi Chemical, and so all three of them have now um, discovered that there's a huge demand for, um, you know, these extruded or cast sheets, and it's all because of protective shield. And that's not expected to go away anytime soon. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, 
give it a few months and we're back to normal. Even if business gets back to normal, consumers have this feeling that they want to have some protection between themselves and others, people who serve them, and vice versa. Companies want to protect their employees. So there is truly going to be demand for this you know, to remain. Well, and what's interesting, too, uh, you know, Jim, is that here's a company, right, because of what's happened with the virus, and this is a reminder that when it comes to the virus, there's often several different sides to this story. We know a lot of companies shut down, a lot of jobs have been lost. We keep talking about the economic impact. These folks, though, have actually had to bring on more workers, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, um, and, and in that sense, it's a somewhat happy story because, um, you know, they've had to, you know, add more workers, and a lot of them are temporary staff because they just couldn't handle the orders, they couldn't handle the um, logistics of actually getting product to uh, people. Plus, they've been able to redeploy workers from their other type parts of the business that are not doing as well, like automotive, and they've been taking some of those workers, putting them onto the sheeting business, you know, to make, you know, the the sheets that go into all these, um, um, you know, sort of partitions that you see in businesses. So in that sense, this is a company that hasn't had to say, everybody go home. Instead, they're saying, you know, you've got a real need here to help the rest of business operate, and they're here. And that's nothing to sneeze at. Oh, oh, no. oh really? Oh, Jim's oh. headline and Kill all, his mic. I'm just going to say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> we just... We all gave Jim a round of applause when he gave us that headline. So. There you go. Well, it's a great, uh, it's a great leader but, of the business section. I mean, Jim, I guess last question for you is, how does this sort of jive with with what you're seeing? So you're looking across the entire business landscape. I mean, are these the sorts of stories that that we're going to keep seeing? You know, these maybe unexpected places where where we see some growth. Well, unfortunately, um, no. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, um, these are going to be the minority of companies yeah. simply because uh, demand in pockets like this are going to be you know, very strong. But overall, anything that's consumer-related, simply because of the lockdown of so many consumers in so many countries, that's going to be tough to actually maintain demand. We've already seen that in travel. Yeah. We've already seen that in things like autos. So um, let's just say it could be the lost year. Yeah, and I think our team even at our office talks about uh, that some of the plexiglass has been put up around various desks so that I can have some space finally from Jason Kelly and my producer, Paul Brennan. Just going to say it. (laughs) I mean, I think you made that clear back when we were in the office with the tower of books that you have and among other I'm stuff. Resourceful. I figure out you. how to create little borders. How to, how to create like a little den for yourself. And uh, I, I can see you, you, it's not just us. Uh, I can see your background at home. Jim Ellis, thank you so much. Assistant Managing Editor, looking at the business section for Bloomberg Business Week. We have a story in the business section this week. Our BW Talks with Chris Nacetta. So I, check that out. I was reading through the edit. Really great, great in terms of some of the uh, content he gave us about travel and what's going yeah. on. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics now. A lot going on in the world of economics. Some big voices speaking. Some big voices speaking to Bloomberg. Kathleen Hayes joins us, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg, on the phone in New York City. She had a sit-down, a virtual sit-down, with Dallas Fed Mm -hmm. President Bob Kaplan, Robert Kaplan, last night on Bloomberg Day Break Asia. So talk to us about – actually, let's play some sound from that, and then we'll talk to you on the other side, Kathleen. 
there's downside risks to the recovery and there and there's upside and a lot of which it's going to be uh, in my view at this stage is going to have less to do with monetary and fiscal policy and a lot more to do with how effectively we execute the healthcare policies so that's a very uh pointed and important point, I feel like, Kathleen. Uh, tell us more about what Mr. Kaplan had to say. Well, uh, this is something that Rob Kaplan's been delving into very deeply, uh, daily, very carefully. As he says, you know, he has conversations with uh, scientists and virologists, several, all, all kinds, all the time. And um, he sits on the board, in fact, of one of Harvard University's uh, uh, a medical group. Anyway, he's he's really got his hands on this. And what he he's I think he's in a way reasonably optimistic about the economy. But he says when he says there's upside risk and downside risk in healthcare, well, the up I guess let's start with the downside risk. As as many Fed officials have said, including Jay Powell, as long as people don't feel confident about going out and really going to a store. I feel pretty okay. I'm okay social distancing and wearing a mask and all that. I know people who aren't. Uh, or and, and even more so, like going to a game, going to a restaurant, or going to work because they're not afraid, you know, they're afraid they won't be safe enough. Uh, that's going to hold the economy back. But uh, in some kind of ideal world, in fact, he's even said, I mean, he said it again this week, that it, with all that money we're spending, billions if not trillions, why not take millions or even billions and, and invest it in the technologies, for example, something where you could just be on your way to a football game and get tested and we'd know if you had COVID-19 or not, right? So I think those are sort of the two extremes. And I think that's why he says how we handle this is so important because we've seen some of the, you know, some of the recovery. He called the bottom in May. Right. Um, and even before we got these data. But I think that's what's so, so, so important to him. Kathleen, I love that that's the snippet that you chose to play here for us because I think if there's any consistent message from leaders in this world is that until you get the virus under control, you're just not going to have that safety security measure out there in the economy. And whatever you need to do to make people feel confident, I mean, it's it's that simple. It's not simple getting there, but it's that simple that that has to be the focal point. And, you know, we've talked with some pretty smart officials, too. And, you know, this whole idea that you kind of almost need a military effort, you know, talk about a war. We did talk about this being a war, the virus, but you really need a coordinated, you know, kind of almost military-like um, reaction to it to to get this under control and to make sure that you know you're putting all the systems in place, the technology, whatever it is, the medicine um, to get control of it. Well, and I think it's also another point they make along those lines is that it isn't just the generals and the colonels and corporals who count. It's every soldier on the ground, right? Every person by social distancing, wearing their mask and washing their hands all the time, can make a huge difference. And I think one of the trickiest things for many people is the workplace. Uh, you know, and you can go to you can go to Bloomberg, you can go to J.P. Morgan, you can go to a manufacturing plant, and even just the most basic level there of figuring out what are the simple, safe things you can do so people can go back to work. And even if it's not quite full force, right, at least getting partly there, seems to me that that's part of the message too. Um, we treatments that's important. Vaccine maybe takes a while, and then there's just you know. I think one thing everybody should realize is these these, uh, these these kinds of viruses tend to have basically sort of a two-year cycle, and we hope we can get it under control before two years because they tend to die down. SARS did, MERS did, but uh, there is 
regardless of what happens, this is not going to be with us forever. It's just that right now what we can do to help the people who are out of work and to help small businesses rebuild or, you know what I mean, or, or move on to something else if their business has been so beaten up that they can't even do that again. That's what's important in, in June right now. Most important thing that you've heard from uh, Chair Powell? Well, you know, um, when he said uh, that, and I think it's tough, right? He's a chairman of the Fed. He does not want to get politicized, whatever he thinks himself personally about what the Republicans, Democrats, and Congress should do. He said giving, right now he does think, more support for people recently unemployed and, again, for small businesses is probably a good idea because the economy is starting to recover. And now, but it's not recovered enough for everybody to get jobs right away. And in order to feed the recovery and also just to take care of people who, it's like a natural disaster. You know, it isn't because you messed up and you lost your job, right? It's a natural disaster, like a tsunami or something that just knocks everything down. We have to support those people in the meantime. I think him taking that very strong but very subtle step, making that statement, is probably important to the people in, co- in Congress right now who are arguing some kind of further steps. Maybe we have to modify the, the checks that go out, right? Maybe we have yeah. to modify who gets it and who doesn't. That's important, and Rob Kaplan has made that point recently as well. But uh, I think that was a, that was probably the strongest thing that, that Jay Powell said today. Yeah. I am also a little concerned that people are getting, you know, worried that people are going to get a little bit more money in these checks and that's why they're staying home because I think that's not necessarily yeah. the right focal point. It's, a, it's about let's just – make sure everybody's being taken care of so that people do the right thing on a healthcare level. And that ultimately will help us get closer to reopening the economy sooner rather than later. Um, Kathleen, thank you so much. Congratulations. Um, Good conversation with Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed. So I'm so glad we could uh, share that with you. Yeah. And and I think that that point, just going right back to to that little bit of sound that we played, that this is ultimately about managing the health crisis. I, I feel totally. like we're losing a little bit of that focus. Because we heard uh, that a lot, I feel like, in our conversations early on. And yeah. I do think, I, I feel like there's a little bit more pressure to kind of reopen, get it going. And yeah. then every once in a while, someone's like, uh, folks, let's not forget, we're still in a healthcare crisis. Yeah, big time, big time. And I think it's especially hard to ignore that when you are looking at the headlines day to day, the state by state headlines, especially when you think about Florida, Texas, yeah. now California. Um, you think about New York City going to phase two reopening and sort of bracing ourselves. You think about what the impact is going to be from all those people out protesting. Uh, there's a lot to get our heads around. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser right here with you on a Wednesday afternoon. It's time for Bloomberg Green. That's brought to you by PGM, the investment management business of Prudential. Find out how PGM stands by the clients and communities they serve around the world. Visit PGIM.com. So in our weekly Bloomberg Green segment, Jason Kelly, we're going to take a look at the green-eyed investors who are starting to reposition for the post-pandemic future. It begs the question, who will profit the most from a green recovery? So let's get into it with Emily Chasen. She's sustainability editor at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone in New York City. I stole your words because they were good ones. Um, and <laughs> she joins us. Oh, actually, are you not in New York? No, You're in I'm Pencil- in Philadelphia today. <laughs> You're in Philadelphia. Okay. I know everybody's been moving around a little bit in part of our news organization. So tell us about this because I think this is, you know, Jason and I are talking a lot about how you know, ultimately, so many things and the way you get things to change is often kind of follow the money or with some kind of financial incentive. And I do wonder, you know, this has certainly played out in the green world as well. 
Yeah, well, it's been an interesting few weeks in the green world where there's been a lot more talk about racial justice and environmental justice. And um, there's a lot of connections, I guess, between like where a power plant is and how that air pollution affects communities of color that are close to that. And lots of questions about, you know, if we do this green recovery, if we're able to get to that point where we're building sort of a new economy and building back better, you know, who is going to be able to participate in that and how is it going to be equal? Because there are... um, there's so many investors that are going really fast into the space, but mm-hmm. there's people who are, you know, maybe going to be left out again. And, and do we want to have the same model that repeats that history if we're building a new kind of economic structure in the future? So we do want people to read your story, of course, but, you know, give us a taste of it. Who Who is going to win? Who Who's going to make some money here? Yeah, well, you know, investors already have made a ton of money in the green stocks that were, you know, thriving at the end of the year. They felt like this last little bit was a buying opportunity. So people have gone back into companies like Tesla and Enphase and, you know, green funds have been performing really well coming out of this. And there's a ton of investors that are saying, okay, well, I'm still going to go ahead and launch my green infrastructure fund and I'm going to um, invest in that. The thesis still holds and they're just going like gangbusters. So the question is, when you build these new companies, what do they look like for the communities that are there um, and elsewhere? And so an option that some people are starting to talk about more is bringing back some of these profit-sharing models that existed in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president. Well, talk to us about them, exactly how they work and how that would be you know, a way of spreading around the wealth. Yeah, so profit sharing is, you know, not that common today anymore. You yeah. still find companies like General Motors or Ford where they have some sort of profit sharing arrangement with companies. But there are a few, like 6,000 companies that have some sort of employee stock ownership plan in them. Um, and Leo Strine just did a, a piece for Bloomberg Opinion. He's the former Delaware Chancery Court judge. Yeah. But he just did a piece for Bloomberg Opinion this week saying, you know, profit sharing might be a great way to improve equality and just sort of share the wealth a little bit better in the future. And there was actually just a study earlier this year on what green companies that do this profit sharing look like. And it found out that they were 21% scoring better on their sustainability assessments than companies that weren't employee owned that were also green. That's so interesting. So I I guess, you know, one of the things I I did want to ask you, Emily, knowing that that you were joining us, you know, we've heard a lot of people talk about sort of ESG in kind of a different lens over over the past few weeks and that, you know, the E has been getting a lot of attention. You know, there have been some people focused on the G, you know, sort of on the wonkier side of, you know, boards and how companies are run and executive compensation, things like that. But the S has certainly come sort of front and center. How does that all balance out? And, you you know, you alluded to the idea that, you know, over the past few weeks, some of the climate and some of the more racial justice types type issues have been linked together rightly. Um, but but say a little bit more about how it all fits together. Yeah, well, it's really about who gets to own the clean energy future. You know, if you think about your solar panels on your roof that's literally like power to the people right like yeah. it's coming yeah. to your house and you can um you own the power and you can sell it back to an electric company often and make some money from it um or decentralization is a big part of the economic future and there's a huge opportunity for um more equal payment and economic incentive systems in that so i think it is something that people are starting to think about as they go forward and say well, who's going to own this future and how can we create a different economic structure under it if we're going to invest all this taxpayer money in it, if we're going to invest all this capital in it. 
yeah, no, it's a re- that's a really interesting point, and and uh, I'm glad you pointed out how linked all this all, all these things are because it's important to think about. And as Carol said at the top, we know you got to follow the money to to understand this, and uh, you and your team do such a, ni- a nice job of that. Emily Chasen, sustainability editor for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Her story: Who will profit the most from a green recovery? It it you know when I read the story, but, it was not exactly what I thought I it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, it was good. No. Exactly. I'm with you as well. Right. But it's it's an interesting way of looking at it, especially against the context of kind of everything else that's going on in our world right now. Yeah. Well, right? and and I feel like even before, you know, we really saw the last few weeks and all the protests around racial justice, we were talking a little bit more about the state of the worker. I remember the conversation we had um, with the former Volvo CEO, Per Yellenhammer. Boom. Pulled it nice. out. Um, nailed it. Uh, and he talked a lot about, you know, taking care of the blue collar worker. And I yes. think that that's a really interesting thing to keep A priority. Mind. A priority. Chris Heisey is with us, back with us. Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer for Bank of America, Private Bank, and Merrill on the phone in New York City. Chris, it is nice to have you back with us. Um, Actually, I believe you're uh, on the phone in Connecticut. So talk to me about when you look at this market environment, uh, we're well off, certainly on the equity side of things, well off our lows. But it is interesting that JP Morgan story, you know, they're looking at different asset classes and there's a lot of market correlations, a lot of trades um, happening in tandem. Yes, I think this is emblematic of a market environment in which, first of all, the liquidity was the first phase of the workout process. And with hyper-liquidity, once you get that stabilize, stabilization and that, and that low point like we had on March 23rd, uh, you look for signs that are confirming things. You look for signs in the economy and then ultimately in the market. And with that liquidity push, correlations tend to rise. And as correlations rise, you get that first phase, and that is the catch-up phase. And there's a lot of investors out of this market. Cash levels are very high, in some cases at record levels. Mm. And then next phase is more than likely the long-term money, particularly the asset management community, which is no longer getting redemptions, but are actually have to put some of that cash to work and participate in a market advance that we see unfolding between now and the end of the year. So what's going to trigger that next phase? You know, the next phase is, is an interesting one because we've gone from shutdown to reopening, and now it's a reevaluation phase. Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? It means that we need to see confirmation in the broader economy, both the consumer and manufacturing, and then at the global level, we need to see global trade pick up. Uh, this will come in fits and starts. We've seen a lot of V-like shapes already across the board, But how high is that right tail of the V is the critical point to see whether or not that long-term asset management money actually starts to come back into the the market. We expect that, Um, and it's because the narrative has changed. The narrative went from pricing in a long depression to pricing in a very difficult, shortest in history potentially, recession that is turning over into uh, a recovery. So when you take a look at some of the discussions happening right now, around things like big macro issues like trade still, right? It never seems to die down. We do know that um, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthouser, he was up um, on Capitol Hill today uh, talking to the House Ways and Means Committee and talked about some different things. He talked about pulling out of the global digital tax talks. Um, You know, this is something that feels like 
is constantly being talked about. And I think depending on whether or not we get another four years of President Trump and his team in the White House, you know, I feel like it will continue to be certainly a, a big area of discussion. How does that impact or play as a factor in the financial markets and investing, uh, in your view, Chris? One of the greatest accelerants that we've seen coming out of the global pandemic and difficult period is that the acceleration of this dual supply chain world uh, is really just beginning. It's not going to be as easy as most people believe. Large corporations are stuck in long-term contracts. It's very difficult for operations to move within one year, let alone a few months. But certainly over the next few years, one of the big themes out there will not necessarily be complete deglobalization, but the but deglobalization leading to different supply chains controlled by domestic economies. And if that starts to happen, which we expect onshoring coming back into the United States, uh, the regional economic zones of Europe, of Japan, of Asia driven by China, and the United States within North America are likely to be building these regional trade zones more or less than what we saw in, in many decades past, which is the global trade zone. And that will be key from the standpoint of negotiations. So it, it is absolutely critical now. It's actually going to get even more important in the couple of years ahead. Hmm. So what are you worried the most about? Well, first and foremost, it's, you know, science gets us back, gets us back, and maybe not to normal, but certainly to a new normal. And the human health care crisis, number one, is always top of mind. It will likely be that for the foreseeable future. Treatment and testing are critical there while we wait for vaccines. Number two would be the U.S. election risk, and that would be more about change, just general change. Markets don't like change if that were to occur. And then three, uh, we just touched on it, it's the, what's the real relationship with the U.S. and China uh, for the next five to ten years. That would be those th in that in that order. Those would be the biggest risks. So, in terms of then investment decision making right now, um, I mean, especially when you hear about a lot of people moving more and more into cash, I just do wonder, you know, what are some of the asset classes that you guys spend a lot of time talking about? You know, what's interesting here is when 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 the knee jerk reaction is high cash levels, whether it's institutionally or the private client side. One believes that it's a move to risk off, and it's a risk off move for a long period of time. What actually we see happening, uh, given the wealth that we manage, is this movement towards we've had a long run of a bull market previous to the virus, and there's a lot of locked up gains. They were taking off the table because many people were above their goals, whether it was retirement or something else. And now they need a new catalyst to come back into what still appears to be the great unknown. Um, so the asset classes we're watching for confirmation that the recovery is not just a small V, but eventually gets back to what we call the new normal, is uh, the cyclical areas. So Japan has been outperforming. Uh, cyclicals have outperformed defensives. Uh, small caps are narrowing their great underperformance. High yield has been outperforming. But most importantly, these two are, are critical to this reflationary period. First is the yield curve. Very mm -hmm. different today than it was pre-virus. We were worried about deflation. Right. Now we've got a steeper yield curve. Strong dollar was before, now a weaker dollar. Those are the two most important parts. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Chris, great to check in with you. Uh, Chris Heisey, Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer at Bank of America, Private Bank in Merrill, on the phone from Connecticut. 
Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.